1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's Earth Day, the 50th annual pause for thought about the state of the planet. But one of its most striking features is in trouble. Bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef this year is more widespread than ever. Each time, a full recovery becomes more unlikely. And, as humans have been locked indoors, the animals have come out to play, and forage, and hunt. Partly, it's that the fauna are more fearless as the streets have stayed empty. And partly, it may be that busy people simply hadn't noticed them before. First up, though, Even in the midst of the pandemic, companies have been busy reporting their first quarter earnings this week. It's not all bad news. Yesterday, Netflix said it added 16 million new subscribers in the first three months of the year because much of the world has had to stay in and chill.
2: Our small contribution in these difficult times is to make home confinement a little more bearable.
1: Today, it's AT&T's turn. The owner of HBO and Warner Media, unlike Netflix, pays its shareholders a regular dividend, a big one. Over the past year, it's returned more than $14 billion to investors and had announced plans to return even more. In fact, before the crisis, companies in the S&P 500 were expected to give more money than ever this year to shareholders through dividends. But now during the crisis, that's sparking anger among politicians. Some companies are paying shareholders at the same time as asking for government help.
0: Any corporation that takes taxpayer dollars must protect their workers' wages and benefits, not CEO pay, stock buybacks, or layoffs.
1: But it's not obvious that dividends, and their related cousins, share buybacks, are always a bad thing.
2: Dividends are the way that successful companies reward their shareholders for being shareholders.
1: Stanley Pignol is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent.
2: So in the same way that a landlord is going to demand rent payments or that a bank is going to demand interest, a shareholder is going to demand a dividend from a company because they own the company.
1: And as for share buybacks, they accomplish pretty much the same thing.
2: I like to say that share buybacks are dividends with a PR problem. The company goes out and buys back some of its own shares, and that means it then has fewer shareholders and future profits then get split between fewer remaining shareholders. But they're essentially the same thing. They are a way for companies that have too much money, hopefully because they've generated lots of profit, to give back some of that profit to shareholders and keep those shareholders interested in remaining shareholders
1: but but even before the, the the current crisis there has been grumbling about dividends and share buybacks as money changing hands among plutocrats essentially
2: yeah so the the feeling has been that shareholders have basically taken too much money out of companies one way of looking at it is the amount of money that is spent on share buybacks and dividends versus things like capital expenditure, research and development. And and recently in the U.S., big companies have spent more on rewarding shareholders than they have on on seemingly more more useful things. They get a bad rap, but but dividends really are necessary. And what they do is they, they recycle cash from mature companies into young ones that need investment to grow or maybe they need to repair their balance sheet. So if you think about oil companies, for example, oil companies pay some of the highest dividends, a lot of people would say, well, that's a good thing. You don't necessarily want more money in in what is a fading industry. You want that money to be recycled into new and exciting industries, maybe, maybe renewables. So really kind of attacking dividends is a bit wide of the mark. And that's why we should be worried that they're falling so precipitously as a result of the COVID-19 crisis.
1: So you expect dividends this year across the boards to, to be just rock bottom. I mean, is that is that truly across the board?
2: Yeah. I mean, basically everywhere in the world, dividends are going to fall. Companies now are just starting to report results. And from what they're saying, our estimate is that Whereas companies globally returned around $2.2 trillion to shareholders in 2019, that figure is going to go down by about $800 billion this year, so down to $1.4 trillion. That that is an unprecedented fall in dividends and buybacks, and it's actually much sharper than what we saw in the financial crisis of 2008, for example. Dividends are essentially a factor of two things. They're, They're a factor of how much profit you make and how confident you are in the future. Both of those things, for pretty much every company in the world... Is, is now at, at rock bottom. Governments are not very keen on companies, or at least some companies, paying dividends, in particular if they've been bailed out or if they're systemically important. And then companies feel, maybe, rightly, that there may be new opportunities in the downturn. It may be a good time to have some spare cash, for example, to buy a competitor that's struggling. So for all those reasons, you know, th- th- these are very uncertain times. And and so for the
1: the general overall health of things, you think that a a cut across the board then is, is the best thing at this stage?
2: Yeah. So clearly there are companies that should not be paying dividends. So if you are a company that's received a bailout, for example, it would be pretty outrageous for you to take money that you have borrowed or that you have been given by the government and then pay your shareholders with it. That money is meant to go on keeping your employees on payroll and making sure that you can operate throughout the crisis. So those companies, companies that have received... Tailored bailouts, for example, airlines, should definitely not be paying dividends. Another category of companies are banks. Banks are different to normal companies in two ways. The first is when they fail, the taxpayers typically need to bail them out, as we discovered not so long ago. There are no banks that have so far failed or threatened to fail, but when the economy is so dicey, you don't want to take any risks. So it would be much better if they didn't pay any dividends and they kept the money on their balance sheet. Uh, regulators have forced that in Europe and in Britain, but in the, in the US, banks are still saying that they want to pay dividends. Uh, we think that's uh, a mistake. And the second thing is the more money banks have on their balance sheet, the more they can finance the recovery as and when it comes. Uh, so for those reasons, banks definitely should not be paying dividends uh, at this time.
1: But what about away from those sort of systemically important industries or the ones that have basically already got a handout of, of, of some kind?
2: then it's going to be a decision for the companies. Now, you know, even in the depths of the crisis we are in now, there are companies that are still doing relatively well. If you look at utilities, for example, if you look at some of the big tech groups, they haven't been impacted so much. A lot of them are, are very profitable and have paid regular dividends. And, and we would argue there's no reason why why they should stop. The danger is that companies feel like they need to defend their dividends that they've paid for for years, and so even if they don't generate enough profit, they will they will still pay more in dividends, uh, and then they get into debt to sustain that dividend. And it, although it sounds completely mad, it does happen, and it could happen um, a lot more. So that that's really what you want to avoid. And I think the argument that the boards should listen to is it's not a sign of weakness to cut your dividend. It's also a sign that the situation has changed and it really has changed. And the dividend that you promised in the past was predicated on business as usual. And we are now in a period in which it's not business as usual. So wait and see. If you don't pay a dividend now, you can always pay a double dividend next year. But for now, it may make a lot of sense to keep that money on your balance sheet.
1: I mean, it seems clear with confidence in such short supply kind of across the board that, the, that maybe, you know, no one would want to pay any kind of dividend or do any kind of share buyback just, for, you know, just out of nothing more than fear. What, what's the downside if, in fact, everyone goes that way?
2: Well, there are savers that rely on dividends in the same way that a landlord might rely on on rental income to, to make ends meet. So, you know, you are penalizing pension funds, retirees, uh, and so on. The bigger risk, I think, is in the medium term. Once you cut a dividend, it can be very easy to ramp it up only slowly. And the risk then is that companies might have too much cash on their balance sheet, ironically, and become less less efficient, that there is a certain kind of degree of flabbiness that that builds into the economy, and that the money that should go to these new dynamic industries is trapped in in old dinosaurs that are being too conservative instead. I have to say for now that feels like a very second order problem uh, and that very few investors should begrudge companies for just playing it safe at least until we know how long the situation is going to last.
1: Stanley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. There isn't a single facet of life almost anywhere on the planet that has not been affected, upended by the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: Things are getting pretty ugly. Investors are running away from assets they see as risky. There is the risk that skepticism and fear and mistrust kind of snowballs into something that becomes as big of a problem in the fight against COVID as COVID itself.
1: For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy, read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.
1: Coral reefs are as biodiverse as they are stunningly colorful. They cover just a tenth of a percent of the ocean's floor, but are home to more than a quarter of its species. The world's largest reef, though, is in big trouble once again.
3: Big parts of the Great Barrier Reef are dying.
1: Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, The Economist's column on Asia.
3: Exceptionally warm seas have led the Great Barrier Reef, the world's biggest coral system, to suffer its third mass bleaching in five years.
1: And what exactly is it that happens during these bleaching events? Why are they so damaging?
3: Coral bleaching takes place when sea temperatures rise sharply. That causes the coral polyps that make up the reefs to eject the algae that help them generate food via photosynthesis. So once those pigmented algae are ejected, the coral starts to die and soon it starts to look a ghostly white.
1: And it seems as if we're hearing about these bleaching events more and more often in respect to the the Great Barrier Reef itself. I mean, how is the reef doing?
3: So I spoke to Terry Hughes, who is director of the Reefs Program at James Cook University in Queensland. He conducted an aerial survey of the Great Barrier Reef in March. His findings are that although this year's bleaching is not the most severe. That happened in 2016. It's the most widespread and extensive. And notably, for the first time, large parts of the southern part of the 2,300 kilometre long reef have now been bleached. That's a first. I mean, ordinarily, the waters in the south, because they're in higher latitudes, closer to the pole, should be cooler. But not this year. In fact, across the whole reef, February recorded the highest temperature in 120 years of monitoring. Mass bleaching events, which were unknown before 1998, are now so common that Australia's Bureau of Meteorology, as well as America's NOAA Weather and Oceanic Service, issue forecasts for bleaching.
1: And what about prospects for recovery once a bleaching event has
3: finished? Coral reefs can recover from a bleaching. I mean, the fastest recovering coral species can bounce back within a decade. So a single bleaching isn't the end of the world. But it's these successive bleachings that is imposing huge strains upon the Great Barrier Reef. That's the challenge for the reef. And the prognosis really isn't good. In the future, the chances are that the reef will look more and more patchy. So yes, the pressure now is on to address a rise in global temperatures and a rise in sea temperatures.
1: It's very clear that the proudest about the Great Barrier Reef are the Australians themselves. What do they make of this increase in frequency of these bleaching events?
3: Australians are extraordinarily proud of the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, it's part of Australian identity. And of course, bear in mind that the reef generates a huge amount in tourism dollars. And the government also is supportive of the reef, at least, you know, rhetorically. But for decades, the reef has been the subject of intense politics. It's an intensely political issue. And in this instance, the current coalition has on its back benches, out-and-out climate change deniers, whilst the ruling Liberal Party is also very close to the oil and gas and iron ore interests that have done much to stoke the economy over the past couple of decades. And so the government is not the greenest by any measure. It now acknowledges the impact of man-made climate change. It claims that it is meeting and beating its targets under the Paris Climate Agreement. But in reality, that's only through an accounting slate of hand. And in practice, it tends to downplay man-made climate change, or it says that it's more the responsibility of other parts of the world. In truth, though, Australia is the second highest emitter of carbon per capita behind only Saudi Arabia.
1: What do the climate change deniers make of these bleaching events, which are absolutely undeniable?
3: Some say that the bleaching events have not been scientifically measured and that the extent of coral bleaching in recent years has been overstated. Others say that the drought and fires that gripped Australia throughout the last austral summer and now the high sea temperatures, which have caused damage to the reef, are part of a natural cycle. But this absolutely isn't the case. Climate change deniers have been given a platform by the Rupert Murdoch press who dominates city newspapers in Australia. Most Australians care about climate change and they do care about the damage caused to the Great Barrier Reef. Of course, Australia, like every other country, has other things on its mind. Of course, the coronavirus pandemic has occupied both the government's attention and that of Australians. So the news of the mass bleaching didn't make the kinds of headlines that it probably deserved.
1: But this is a government that's really been putting out mixed messages about climate change and about environmental matters.
3: The government is unhelpfully ambivalent. Yes, it acknowledges man-made climate change and damage to the reef. But at the same time, for instance, the government's special envoy to the Great Barrier Reef once complained that what he called indoctrinating youngsters to be worried about climate change is a form of, in his words, child abuse. Australians do care about climate change and about the Great Barrier Reef, but I'm afraid not enough to call their own government to account over these matters.
1: Dominic, thank you very
0: much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: It's one of the most widespread phenomena of the COVID-19 era, as far as social media are concerned anyway. Wildlife gone wild while all the humans are on lockdown. From boar roaming around Barcelona to wily coyotes on San Francisco's streets, the sightings are stacking up. Some of it is cute, of course, but some of it is downright scary.
4: M49 is a bear with, I think you could say, attitude.
1: John Hooper is our Italy and Vatican correspondent.
4: He was captured last year and put into an enclosure and managed to get out over three electrified fences and a four-meter-high barrier. He was put in initially because of attacks on livestock, including cattle, and breaking and entering various alpine refuges and cottages. What's happened is that he's woken up from his hibernation and he's roaming around in the alpine areas of the province of Trento, much less hindered than he would be were there not this lockdown.
1: And I suppose he's just one of the animals who's been noted wandering around who would not normally just be seen wandering around.
4: Yes, indeed. We've had a variety of sightings of animals, including wolves in what would otherwise be a densely populated industrial centre near Florence. On Sardinia, there's been dolphins that normally hang around the mouth of the port. They've come right inside and they are often swimming up and down under a key and engaging with the people above and looking up at them as if to say, why aren't you moving around in your boats?"
1: And of course, this phenomenon goes far beyond Italy. It's not just Italy that's locked down.
4: No, I've seen cases in many countries of animals apparently moving into spaces that the humans have temporarily vacated. I heard of pumas wandering down a street in Chile, which can't have been too reassuring for the locals. And there was an alligator that was seen enjoying a beach by himself and then wandering across a road. And that was in South Carolina.
1: And this is just a matter of animals that that feel a little more fearless about coming into what would normally be human spaces or uh, trying to figure out where we all went.
4: Uh, Yes, I think that there is certainly a strong element of that. But the scientists I've spoken to have said, well, beware, because what we don't know is how many of these animals were there already and how much it is due to human beings noticing more the wildlife that is around them because they're staring out of windows, feeling rather bored because of the lockdown." I understand that in Panama, for example, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute is carrying out a survey to make sure that these observations are not just anecdotal and that they really do reflect a change in the behaviour of the animals themselves.
1: And I suppose it provides a little light relief, a chance to become citizen scientist, but what happens when we're all released from lockdown and we spill out onto the streets and and drive those animals back to their hiding holes?
4: That is something that is worrying scientists because there is evidence that animals are using roads more than they would otherwise. When the human beings start to get back into circulation, the animals won't break their habit quite as soon, and there will be accidents that could also harm humans as well as the animals.
1: John, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure.